1: Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am your host, Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, and I'll be your host for today's interview. Uh, Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with May Nye. Dr. Nye is the Lung Family Professor of Asian American Studies and History at Columbia University and is the author of many books and articles, including her latest book, The Chinese Question, The Gold Rushes and Global Politics, which came out with Norton in 2021, and this year won the Bancroft Prize for the best book in American history. Welcome to the New Books Network, May, uh, and congratulations on the very well-deserved accolades.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Let's begin, as we always do on the New Books Network, by just hearing a little bit about you. Tell us about yourself and your background, and especially how you became interested in history.
0: Well, I was a uh, so-called non-traditional student. Um, I went to college uh, a very long time ago, and then uh, never finished. Um, was involved in community work and union activities. Um, so I went back to college to finish my degree when I was—I um, already had, you know, raised a family, and I was uh, older, quote unquote. I won't say how old I was. Um, So, when I went to graduate school, I was much older than my peers, um, and uh, I was, you know, I I had gone to graduate school actually because I was just, I think, book starved, you know. I had been an activist for so many years, and I wanted to think more about the world and what it meant to try to change things. Um, And I didn't actually plan to become an academic, I thought I would go back to, The nonprofit world or something, but I got hooked. I really love the research. Um, I love teaching. Uh, And so I started on this other path.
1: And what brought you to the topic of this book in particular? You kind of tell the story a little bit in the introduction to the book about how uh, uh, this book's genesis was in a conversation that you actually had with a student.
0: Right. I was advising a student uh, who was writing a uh, see his senior thesis on labor politics in the American West in the late 19th century and He was looking specifically at the workingman's party and and he wrote that the Chinese in California, which was the uh, They were the object of the workingman party's ire. He wrote that they were coolies meaning that they were indentured workers So when I talked to to them, I said, well, you know, that's not true. They weren't indentured. They weren't here under contract. They were voluntary immigrants. And they said, well, that's not what I read in the books. And he showed me all the literature, which said that they were coolies. And I realized that there was a huge disconnect between labor history and Asian American history. Even in Asian American history, it wasn't... Always that clear exactly what was the status of Chinese workers. So I vowed I would slay the coolie myth.
1: And I also I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, the process of writing this book, because as we'll get into in a little bit, this is a very wide ranging book where you cover a lot of, of, of territory, both uh, uh, in terms of geography, or, excuse me, in terms of chronology, but especially in terms of geography. So could you just talk a little bit about what it was like doing the research, where you had to go and, and sort of what that process was like?
0: Yes, uh, the book took a very long time to research and write. Sometimes I did feel like I bit off more than I could chew. Um, It was not only that I had to go to these far-flung places to go to do the research, that part was actually fun, going to the archives in Australia and South Africa and throughout the United States, um, England. But what was more challenging was that I had to learn the background, I had to learn the history of these areas. I was trained as an American historian, and I took up the question of uh, Asian American history, which involved knowing something about Asia and China and the Pacific. Um, But I had not really known anything about Australia um, or Africa, or even the British Empire, besides a very cursory knowledge So I had to really study these fields and it took a lot of work. Um, I had help from colleagues who pointed me to uh, readings. I don't know if you have uh, academics in your audience or graduate students. I would say that it was like studying for my oral exams all over again, studying several new fields of history, and I still was very nervous. I was nervous that I had things wrong. I, you know, I made mistakes. So the research part, going to all these archives, as I said, was uh, quite an adventure, and it was, it was uh, interesting. It was fun. It was very helpful. Uh, for example, you know, I noticed some patterns in the american west in the organization of chinese mining but the sources in california are actually quite scattered and scarce because the gold rush took place just right about the time and shortly after california was acquired by the united states after the war with mexico so there was a very weak state government there were very there are very few records that were kept that were centralized. And so you have to go dig around in a lot of small places to find a few things. But in Australia, you know, the gold fields were under the management of the colonial government, and they kept kept tons of records. And they also did not completely segregate the Chinese from other gold diggers. I mean, they did treat them differently, and there was segregation on the ground. But in the record keeping, they were In the same uh, claims registers, ratepayers books, property books, they're all there together and so I could go to these registers and see what the patterns were and in a way it corroborated what I was seeing in California although with many more examples and so in a way I learned about California by going to Australia
1: well, let's take a step back here for a moment and just set the context for, for the book a bit here. Where are we talking about? Where were the major gold rushes of the 19th century? And in what ways were these not just local or regional, but in fact, global events?
0: Right, you know, um, humans have been uh, digging gold for uh, almost since you know the beginning of time. Gold has always been treasured for its beauty, its purity, Um, And because it's scarce, you know, for its value, but it didn't really become the money commodity until the early modern era. And even then, most nations or societies use silver as their means of exchange because silver is more plentiful than gold. But so the gold rushes in the 19th century were phenomenal because they enabled the world economy to have lots more gold. I mean, this more gold that was dug up in 50 years in the late 19th century than had been mined in the previous 3000 years. So that's a huge increase, but it was also only possible because there was, um, capital investment, uh, that could be deployed in deep mining, uh, mass transportation mechanisms, uh, mass, labor supplies, these are also factors that were necessary for the amount of gold to be mined in the late 19th century. So our image of the gold rushes as being conducted by rugged individuals, you know, who traveled to these frontier regions, that was true, um, but that was also very short-lived. And the the era of individual prospecting and individual mining becomes rather quickly overtaken by highly capitalized deep and deep um, deeply technologically driven mining.
1: And this might be kind of an obvious question, but what is drawing so many people to the gold fields? And I guess to make it a little bit more specific, in particular, what are some of the push and the pull factors that are bringing Chinese emigrants to places like California or South Dakota or Australia in the 19th century?
0: Well, because gold is a money commodity, uh, people see an opportunity to get rich really quick. <laughs> and so they come from all over. Um, in fact, it's not always uh, a so-called push factor, but the pull factor, right? The prospect of, of getting rich and making fabulous riches. Now, of course, when people get to the gold fields, it's a total gamble. And so more people fail than succeed. But everybody thinks they're going to be the lucky one and hit the mother load, so to speak. And the same thing was true in China. I mean, Chinese went to the gold fields, uh, first in California and later to Australia, just like the Europeans did. They went looking for riches. Um, There was, uh, in the beginning, I don't think the gold seekers from China came out of the emigration-sending regions that were pushed out because of um you know poverty or civil conflict but they do become part of the the main they actually become the mainstay of people who go looking for gold but the people who go looking for gold from china just like other regions they're not the poorest people the poorest people rarely migrate because they can't afford to so it's usually people of some kind of middling uh Class, or maybe you could say lower middle class as a general term. People who had uh, money to buy a ticket uh, for their passage or whose family had property that they could use as collateral to take a loan. That was true not just in China but elsewhere as well.
1: And in the book, you cover a few different gold rushes in a few different parts of the world. And I'm wondering how these the, these rushes are similar and in what ways they are different, especially as it pertains to uh, the experience of people in these gold rushes. Um, and in particular, how it pertains to the experiences of Chinese workers and gold seekers and others who came to these places during, during these rushes.
0: Right. Uh, that's a great question. In California, um, in Australia, these two gold rushes um, have remarkable similarities. Um, they take place um, very quickly, one on the backs, of, on the heels of the other. In California, the rush starts in eighteen forty-eight, forty-nine, and in Australia in eighteen fifty-two. Um, and gold is discovered in Australia by an Australian man who had actually gone to California and, uh, had no luck there and went back to Australia at which time the colonial government in new South Wales had announced, um, a reward for anybody who could locate payable gold by payable gold. I mean gold that is, can be mined for a profit. And so, uh, the Australian rush was on and people came from all over the world, uh, from Europe, uh, as well as the Americas um, and also China. Um, and on the gold fields they had very similar working conditions. you know they had to pan for gold in the rivers or in Australia. They called them gullies, you know, which are like ravines. Um, the soil was a little different in Australia, so they had different equipment, but they, they were very much the same. And the Chinese that went to both California and Australia, um, had very similar uh, origins in the same counties in southern China. They came from uh, Guangdong province, from an area called the Siyi, or the four counties. Um, Australia also drew people from um, uh, Amoy, or um, a, a another coastal area uh, in southern China. So they came from the same places. Um, they had very similar Ways of organizing their work with um, some of them worked for wages, but mostly they worked in small companies. Uh, these were uh, led by an investor, usually a merchant, um, who hired people to work, and they usually worked on shares um, rather than wages. The other form of organization that I found, and this is what I was referring to before in terms of of a pattern, were cooperatives. And these were really interesting because they were, you know, upwards of uh, maybe six to ten men, they're always men, of course, uh, who had equal shares in a claim. And um, they shared all expenses and all profits, and they had no bosses. And they sometimes had a a so-called treasurer who kept the gold dust and divvied it out at the end of the week, but they shared everything. And so they were egalitarian, um, and they were all associated with the secret brotherhood society that was composed of exiles from China during the Taiping Rebellion, uh, called the Zhe Gong Dang. And in, uh, in different places it had different names. In Australia it was called the Yi, Yi but they were all the same organization. And so they were fictive kin associations. You know, Chinese traditionally organized around native place and family lineage Um, but there's also a tradition of brotherhood societies or fictive kin societies for marginalized men who are estranged from their native villages or families and so these secret societies um as i said are egalitarian internally but they could also be a predatory towards outsiders they, they could be viewed by outsiders as gangs, right, because they often, you know, involved in uh, thievery and this kind of thing. And then in some places, they become involved in the vice trades, right, uh, dealing in opium or gambling or prostitution. But in the goldfields, as a kind of form of labor and social organization, these cooperatives were quite widespread, um, and they persisted because of the strong um cultural and social bonds that they had so when wage labor takes over the mining scene in both california and australia right when the big capital moves in these guys are able to resist the turn to wage labor because they have their cooperatives and you know to be sure they don't make a lot of money but they are able to keep their independence now in South Africa, which is the other major area that I studied, right? My my book goes from California to the um, colony of Victoria in Australia, and then it moves to South Africa. And there, it's a different story. So in a way, it's it's both a um, a comparison of something different, but it also is connected to uh, the movement of. Anti-Chinese politics and diasporic politics as they move across the Anglo-American settler world in South Africa. There was a gold rush in the 1880s when gold was discovered in the eastern part of uh, Transvaal. Uh, at that time, it was still a Dutch Republic or a Boer Republic, um, and that that runs out pretty quickly. And then gold is discovered on the on the Rand, uh, the Rand. And that is a huge strike. But that very quickly becomes dominated by large companies because the gold is fairly deep in the ground. It actually extends very deeply into the ground. Um, but you need a lot of capital investment uh, to do that. So gold mining in South Africa on the rand is from the very beginning in the 18, late 1880s and 90s a highly capital intensive affair that employs a lot of people, uh, a small upper layer of skilled miners who are white, uh, who many of whom actually come from Australia, um, as well as Cornwall. Um, And then you have a large labor force of native African workers who, uh, you know, work for extremely low wages. And so after the first uh, after the second um, South African war um, between uh, the British and the the boer republics uh, where Britain ends up taking over all of, all of South Africa um, there is a shortage uh, in the labor supply uh, because of the war and so um, They have a very hard time recruiting Native Africans back into the mines uh, for reasons I won't go into now. But so they they cast about and they end up recruiting Chinese to go to South Africa. And they are recruited on contracts. uh, Unlike those in Australia and California, they actually are so-called coolies because they're indentured workers. They have very strict contracts. Um, And so their experience is rather different.
1: And one similarity across all of the rushes that you cover in the book is that as time goes on in these places, whites who are working and and, and living in these places as well, they increasingly become concerned with what they're calling the Chinese question, which is, of course, the name of of the book as well. So let's talk about that question a bit. What is exactly the Chinese question? And did it differ at all from place to place?
0: The Chinese question was simply, Are Chinese a racial threat to democratic societies, and therefore should they be excluded from them? And this um, this theory, it's also called uh, the coolie coolieism, begins in California. It is um, uh, it's based on a lie, as I said. Uh, that Chinese were coolies, Uh, they were not indentured workers, Um, but they were smeared with this idea um, to target them as unfree workers. And this is in the 1850s, so it's really important to put this in the context of the sectional conflict going on in the United States right between slavery in the South and free labor or anti-slavery in the North. And California enters the country uh, as a state in 1850 as a free state. Um, but there are actually a lot of uh, really racist policies in California from the very beginning. Laws against blacks, anti-miscegenation laws that included both blacks and Indians, um, segregation, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then there were Southerners, white Southerners, who went to the gold rush and brought their slaves with them so by calling chinese coolies it was a kind of racial shorthand that compared them to african slaves both in the south but also to black people in california and this was designed to get the attention of white miners who by the early 1850s are already being pushed off their claims or earning much less money because of the transition to highly capitalized, deep, deep quartz mining. So the Cooley myth is first spread by the governor of California, John Bigler. He's the first governor of the state, and he's running for re-election in a very tight contest. And so he brings up the Chinese question or the Cooley question as part of his campaign for re-election and He It's his strategy is classic. It's taken straight out of the nativist playbook, which is you identify a population that has a grievance in this case um, unemployed or underemployed white minors You offer up a theory of racial difference to explain that grievance meaning the Chinese are threatening your livelihood and you weaponize it for partisan gain. And that's what he did. And it was successful. He was reelected. And so this idea um, had tremendous staying power, um, and it gets revived in the cities in California in the 1870s after the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad, which actually did not bring, you know, uh, fabulous riches to the West. It brought inequality. it brought uh, unemployment. Uh, because it brought a lot of new migrants from the East to the West. It also brought cheap manufactured goods from the East to the West, which threatened the livelihood of of skilled artisans and and the uh, craft guilds. And so the Chinese became again a convenient scapegoat and the coolie myth was trotted out uh, and used again and leads eventually to national legislation in the 1880s. Now that... Idea that Chinese were coolies actually does not appear on the Australian gold fields. That was a thing that I really found interesting. When I was reading the literature in Australia, I was reading the newspaper accounts, I was reading reports made by uh, the colonial government. Um, there is conflict between Europeans and Chinese but there wasn't a theory, and there certainly wasn't a Cooley theory. There was It was much more um, inchoate. You know, there they were criticisms of Chinese because the whites said that they wasted water. Um, they were suspicious of them because they were not Christians. Um, and the most, the most damning thing they could say about the Chinese was that they, they feared that they would be overrun by Chinese coming from china because australia is in asia right and um and australians said things like we are the farthest outpost of white civilization <laughs> and we are so close to china with its teeming hordes and they were overrun us so they were afraid of uh just being you know, I mean, there are only, there are fewer than half a million people in Australia in the 1850s. So they agitate for restrictions against Chinese, but there wasn't a theory and there wasn't a, a a general policy. And that doesn't happen in Australia till the 1880s, I would say, when there's um, an urban workingman's movement, uh, which is part of a nationalist uh, trend in Australia. And it's the way that uh, the trade unions and the elites in the cities have a common grievance around the chinese even though there were very few chinese in the cities there were you know a small population they had a minor uh, you know kind of position in the lo- in these urban economies and yet now you saw the emerge the reemergence of anti chinese agitation and um, the idea that they were coolies.
1: Let's jump back to South Africa for a moment because I, I thought that was a, a really fascinating story and one that I didn't know mm-hmm. really anything mm-hmm. about before uh, before starting your book. Um, And in uh, the places like the colony of South Africa, the Chinese question becomes entangled with other of these kind of so-called questions that are, are circulating or I guess being asked within Victorian British imperial politics. So I guess my question is, how does late 19th century colonialism, how does it shape the Chinese experience within the British Empire? And then how is Chinese emigration and mobility, how is it also shaping imperial politics itself?
0: Yeah, I mean the what happens in Australia and then what happens in South Africa are part of a trend, which is towards um, a kind of racist regimes in the white settler colonies. You know, the British Empire has different kinds of colonies, right? There's uh, India, which was long its jewel, right? Oh. But they also had um, uh, plantation colonies like in the Caribbean or Mauritius or Fiji, um, where you had uh, enslaved populations uh, and very few Europeans, right? And then you had the settler colonies like Australia, Canada, New Zealand, which were emigration colonies. They were colonies of settlement for, um, you could say population overflow from the UK. I mean, Australia starts as a convict colony right as a penal colony and then it transitions um, to being a settlement colony. So these settlers um, envision creating a, a kind of new version of England, right So you know you have names like New South Wales, right things like that. Um, and of course they have their own particular industries and, and agricultural, Um, pursuits but they they in many ways they think they're more British than the British right because they're so far away and they're trying to recreate something and so they view Chinese and other Asians um, as a threat to that vision of what they want to build they want to recreate uh, a white society now, in, um, and in Australia, that became, as I said, you know, uh, a big point of Australian politics by the 1880s. But Great Britain, or uh, the Home Office, resisted Chinese exclusion as a uh, set policy because from the empire's point of view, they also had priorities to, uh, to maintain their diplomatic and trade relations with China. So they weren't willing to go all the way with a full exclusion policy. Now, in South Africa, it's even more complicated because it's a white settler colony, but the whites are outnumbered by Africans, uh, five to one or six to one. And so when they said South Africa has to be a white man's country, and that they use these words. I mean, in Australia, they said, Australia should be a white man's country. And in South Africa, they said, It should be a white man's country what they meant in south africa was not that they would eliminate the blacks but that they would control the blacks and so south africa had a much more complicated uh, situation where it had to deal with a large native population that it had to discipline um and ultimately um, remove them from their land relocate them into so-called reserves, which were never large enough to be self-supporting because they needed the labor, which they then used as kind of commuter labor into the cities and the mines. So the so-called native question in South Africa was always the big question that lurked behind everything else, including the Chinese question. And the South African politics were complicated too because you had two European traditions, You had um, those who were British or descended from the British, and you had those who were the so-called Afrikaner or descended from the Dutch, uh, who had gone to war with each other uh, several times. So that question of what would be the grounds for reconciliation between the British and and the Afrikaners, it was also a complicated political question. So all these things were bubbling the first decade of the 20th century when the chinese labor was brought in and it becomes a kind of lightning rod for all these other policies to be uh fought out
1: and through all of this you have Chinese people in China who are viewing these, these 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 politics and policies like Chinese exclusion and are reacting to it as well. So, can you talk a bit about the relationship between the so-called Chinese question abroad and Chinese politics at home? What's the reaction to this sort of stuff in China itself?
0: Yeah, this is um, you know the last couple of decades of the Qing dynasty. Um, the Qing had been uh, Rudely introduced to Western power during the Opium Wars. Um, I mean, there had been West, you know, colonial intrusions into China for uh, at least a hundred years before that. But with the Opium Wars, um, you know, the uh, colonial penetration of China becomes much more, uh, much greater. Um, they force open uh, many more ports to Western trade. Uh, the missionaries and uh, businessmen um, start traveling into the interior. Um, and China has a very hard time understanding and responding to these uh, its, its newfound position uh, in an in international scene where they are. Um, well, the term the Chinese always use is this is their century of humiliation, right? The the opium wars um, ended with treaties that were highly unequal. Um, You know, not only the access to the ports, but foreigners um, had rights of extraterritoriality, which meant that they were not subject to Chinese law. Um, And so the unequal treaties become uh, the badge of Chinese uh, inequality and humiliation in the world. And the exclusion laws in the West become the other uh, focal point for China's dishonor. You know, the fact that China are, Chinese people become excluded uh, in the countries of the West is another uh, offense, right, to China's pride. And so by the late 19th and early 20th century, There is a tremendous amount of debate in China over what its future should be. Um, The Qing uh, leaders are split. You know, there are those who want to resist all things foreign, uh, which is impossible to do. Uh, There are those who want to have reforms that would lead to China's modernization in industry and manufacturing and science um, and in politics. And so Uh, in the in the context of these um, debates and turmoil going on in China the exclusion laws in the West are held up as um, a kind of exhibit A in China's weakness right Um, that China is such a weak country that it cannot uh, resist these uh, these unjust and racist laws so people in China especially in the cities um, become uh they gravitate to this issue right and it leads when in, in the united states there's a renewal of the exclusion laws in um, 1902 and it leads to a lot of agitation both in among chinese americans but also um within china that china should resist the exclusion laws it should renegotiate the whole thing and so there's mass petitions there's Um, appeals from the ambassadors Um, and of course the United States isn't interested in you know negotiating (laughs) the exclusion laws Um, and so uh, it it leads to um, a huge boycott in that starts in Shanghai and spreads to other cities a boycott of American made goods and it's a tremendous movement and it it really kind of um, Uh, encapsulates the rising nationalist politics in China which is interestingly right it's against the United States but it's because of the American exclusion laws so the politics in China are really connected to the politics of the Chinese living abroad and to China's standing in the world community
1: And then finally, in your conclusion, you bring the story up to the present day and and make the case that this is an ongoing story. So can you tell us how the Chinese question is still a motivating force today in American politics, but really in global politics more generally here in the early 21st century?
0: Right, so so the exclusion laws themselves are um, on the books uh, in the United States until World War II. Um, They're not repealed in Australia until the 1970s and even a little later in South Africa. Um, So there's a legal structure in place that um, has uh, reproduced, you know, a kind of structure of inequality uh, and racism uh, throughout these these countries for uh, well into the 20th century. And and the racism and stereotypes about Asians and Chinese is also reproduced across the 20th century through the conduct of mostly American wars in Asia and the Pacific, right? So where the enemy, whether it's in Japan or Korea or Vietnam, you know, is painted in, in particularly dehumanizing ways. But by the 80s... Um, in 90s, after China uh, moves towards a, a market-driven economy and opens up to foreign investment and trade, um, China very rapidly became, over the course of uh, two decades, uh, a major world economic powerhouse. And this is a huge threat, um, a competitive uh, threat to uh, the West, and especially to the United States. Uh, I think the EU kind of worked out ways to trade with China um, uh, and it did not treat it as a direct competitor, uh, but the United States did. And so you see a revival of the Chinese question. Um, and interestingly, with a revival of the coolie trope, right? Um, China is seen as uh, not just as as a competitor but as an unfair uh, competitor why is it unfair well because Chinese work for wages that are so low right so the coolie now is um, a Chinese factory worker in in Shenzhen or in these special economic zones Um, and uh, and the coolie trope even we can see it in the United States on American university campuses right where they're uh, increasing numbers of students who are either international students from Asia or um, Asian American students, and they're kind of figured as coolies because um, they work too hard, right? They they're abnormally um, studious. Um, they don't have any fun. They're kind of ruled by uh, tiger mothers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they also pose an unfair advantage. Uh, an unfair com- competitive advantage <clears throat> to uh, American students or white American students who are so-called normal kids, right? Who won't, they're not going to study eight eight hours a week the way the Chinese are imagined to be, and so this is very harmful. You know, it's very um, uh, it's very insulting, really, to Asian American students um, who who do work hard, and they should not be blamed for working hard. Um, and they're not also not all math and computer geeks either. Right. So these are these are stereotypes that we have today. And then, of course, you know, uh, with Trump, you had blaming China and Chinese people for the coronavirus, which has been incredibly consequential in terms of, um, you know, uh, harassment and outright violence and even murders of, of Chinese and Asians in the United States.
1: And then as we begin to wrap up here, uh, I always like to ask my guests to take a, a kind of a step back and, and sort of uh, maybe take a top down sort of 30,000 foot view of their book and, and think about it from the perspective of someone who reads this book and then, you know, puts the book down and maybe a year later or five years later, thinks back to it. What would you hope the, 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 the one big takeaway might be that that reader would remember from this book a couple years down the line?
0: Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, uh, you know, when I started writing this book, as I said, I was <laughs> at first motivated by uh, trying to correct an error that I, I believed was very widespread in uh, American history books. Um, and then it, it led me beyond California, you know, to other places. Um, but, I, you know, when I started the book, which is almost now 15 years ago, um, I I thought it was important to explain the origins of uh, the Cooley myth and of racism against Chinese Americans. And I really had no idea back then how important that question would be in today, you know, with all the violence and and racism uh, aimed at Asian Americans. And I, I hope that people would, uh, who read this book would realize that that's not a new phenomenon, that it has deep historical roots. Um, and I also hope that they would understand that racism in the United States is a really complicated problem. And, and not all racisms are the same, right? So um, uh, I often think about Um, Stuart Hall, the late uh, Anglo-Caribbean sociologist uh, and theorist, who said racism is, is, you can't understand racism as a general thing. There's no such thing as racism in general. There are racisms, plural, and they are always rooted in the context of time and place. And so in the United States, we have multiple racisms (laughs) And they're, they're all kind of related but distinctive uh, in, their, in their origins and, and contours. So I hope that five years from now, people will think about racisms in the United States as a, as a complicated and diverse historical problem and contemporary problem. And, and hopefully my book will help them think about that.
1: And then finally, um, I always like to get a preview of what my guests uh, have been working on since finishing this book. And when it's a book like this, it's only been out for something like, you know, 16 months or or so. It feels a little silly to ask, but historians always have a couple projects uh, in mind if I if I know my colleagues. So I'm curious what you've been working on since then or what kind of questions you're interested in answering in the future.
0: Right now, I'm working on two projects. Um, I am co-editing a book of photography um, by the late Corky Lee, um, premier Asian American photographer, who we lost to COVID uh, in 2021. And so I'm part of a team that's putting out a big retrospective of his photography taken over the last 50 years. So it's a photography book, but it has a fair amount of text in it. So I'm editing, I'm doing some writing and I'm editing the text. And then I'm hoping I can get back to a project that I've been working on for a while. Um, It's called A Nation of Immigrants, uh, A Short History of an Idea. And it's based on the Stone lectures that I gave at Princeton several years ago. And it's a intellectual and political history of the liberal narrative of inclusion in the United States, which is organized around the trope of nation of immigrants, um, as well as the American dream and America as a land of refuge. And so I look at these ideas and try to think about how they entered our political vocabulary. They weren't around you know, forever. <laughs> They're mostly post-World War II uh, constructions and inventions. And so uh, it's, it's a look at that political history and what were the conditions that gave rise to these ideas Uh, What kind of work did they do? Um, And then I wanna think about what kind of narrative we should be advocating for today. Does that narrative still work? Um, Obviously we're in a period today of intense political polarization where you have part of the population that is uh, supportive of immigration or immigrants themselves or descended from immigrants and then you have another part of the population who are also descended from immigrants, but they don't think about themselves that way. A white supremacist faction um, that is very anti-immigration and, and nativist in his orientation. So those are the two things that I'm working on right now.
1: Those sound like great projects. And uh, when, when they come out, we'll have to have you back on the show.
0: Okay, I'd be happy to. Thank you very much for having me.
1: You're so welcome. Dr. May Nye is the Lung family professor of Asian American studies and history at Columbia University and is the author of the recently Bancroft prize winning book, The Chinese Question, The Gold Rushes and Global Politics, which came out with Norton in 2021. Thanks once more for talking with me today, May.
0: Thank you, Steve. Have a good day.
1: You as well.